Thanks, guys. <clears throat> hey, everybody. Hope you had a good Thanksgiving. I'm in week four of my sinus infection. Didn't get a deer so far this season, and the Packers got killed by the lion. So all my earthly gods are destroyed, and I come here trusting in Christ and Christ alone for my salvation. Um, I'm going to... We're going to start a, a sub-series um, on the book, out of the book of Isaiah um, today. For those of you who've been around for a while, oh, so if, you're, um, if, you, if you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible right there in front of you, and I'm going to be reading from page 1059, 1059. If you have a, your own Bible, it's just Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to start in. For the better part of this year, I mean, I think the whole year so far, we've been doing a series called The Gospel Through the Bible, tracing out how God saves, how he delivers, how he redeems, how he transforms, the message of the good news throughout the whole Testament to demonstrate that God's plan of salvation has always been the same. He's always saved people the same way. He's always gone after people the same way. He's always redeemed people the same way. He's always judged people for the same reason. He's always, always, always been very continuous. And um, it's helpful to think, understand that, that there is this continuity. Because when we come to the book of Isaiah, it's, it's easy in a modern city like ours to sit for, for the attitude to be, um, this, this book is 2,700 years old. Um, it was, you know, it was written by a guy who wouldn't eat pork or shrimp in a world where most men, in order to survive in to later adulthood, would have to defend themselves in hand-to-hand combat and kill another man just to get there. It was, it's in a world where they didn't have smartphones. It's in, they spoke a strange Semitic language. They didn't even, they, they, they went from, you know, right to left rather than left to right. You know, I mean, this, there's not a lot of similarities between whoever this Isaiah feller is and, um, I see a southern dialect I use there, and, and, and us. I mean, what, I mean, what really, what, what is there, um, of similarity between him and us, and why do we care in 2013 in Madison, Wisconsin, right? And I, I think one of the ways, I've tried to clarify this over the course of the last year, but one of the ways you can think about this is, um, is in relationship to current. Um, so my extension cord has three wires, right? It's got a positive, a negative, and a ground. And as I stretch this across the stage precariously, um, in order for there to be any relevance of this side of the stage to that side of the stage, um, what has to happen is this, this line has to go all the way across, and it has to be unbroken. And if it is, then the current can go from one end to the other. Please work. Okay, good. <laughs> now, if that's true... It doesn't really matter if there's continuity across the stage with everything else. So if you imagine I'm walking back in time right now, please don't take this as a metaphor that the organ came before the piano, that came before the acoustic guitar, that came before the electric guitar. That is a little funny, but <clears throat> I'm, I'm talking about 3,000 years of human history here. Um, this doesn't have to be connected to this, to that, to that. All that stuff can change, and they don't have to necessarily have a connected relationship to each other. All that has to happen is these three wires have to have continuity all the way through. If those three things don't change, you can change everything else. And what comes out of that outlet is relevant to that bulb 
no matter how far apart they are. And you see, one of the things to recognize is that the main ideas of the Bible, who God is, who we are, and how those two come together, God, humans, gospel, those three things haven't changed at all. A lot has changed. Those three things are not in the group of things that have changed. God, um, I'm going to have to do the cop drop thing, so just bear with me here. Um, God is in the classification of beings that doesn't improve, right? Most of us fictitiously speak about our wives that way, but we all know that's not true. There's only one being that really has no need for improvement, and that's God. And so in 3,000 years, he hasn't changed. He was maximally good then. He's maximally good now. Now, as much as in our sentimentality, sometimes we humans like to believe that, that we've changed a lot, we haven't. And here's the thing you need to know about that. Nobody believes human beings have changed. No one. The only time we think we think that is when we're just being sentimental about ourselves because we want to define ourselves from ourselves and be whatever we want, even if we declare ourselves to be a toaster. But listen, if you go down to UW and you go into the anthropology department and you find yourself an atheist professor, okay? You can try this if you want. I suppose he's got office hours, or she. And you say, listen, no reference to God. Simply in reference to biological evolution, have human beings as a species changed in any substantial way in 3,000 years? The answer to that is, of course not. Nothing happens in 3,000 years, right? Nobody, whether you, whether you take the most secularist, atheistic, non-Christian, unbiblical worldview that there possibly could be in this, in this city, or you take, or you find some fighting fundies on the, you know, our side of town that are, that think that we're crazy liberals or whatever, whatever you want. You take the whole spectrum of everybody in modern life, no one believes human beings have changed who spend any time thinking about human beings. We are virtually exactly the same creatures we were in Isaiah's day. Nothing's changed. And if that's true, then why should the dynamic between these two creatures or beings, I should say, have changed? If God hasn't changed, and we haven't changed, and God is still seeking to redeem us, and we still are doing our best to not be redeemed, (laughs) and yet he continues to pursue us, why would that have changed all that much? There's no reason to believe that, and the Bible constantly says... It hasn't changed. Now, there's a couple things I want to make clear before we get too far down the road on this. Um, I'm not saying a lot of stuff hasn't changed, right? But there's some things about us that haven't changed, and here's why this is important for us. It's very easy for people in our culture. We live in a time of unprecedented peace in our neighborhood, not in the world, but in our neighborhood of the world, unprecedented wealth, unprecedented technology, that it's very easy to think, to believe this sort of fib of modernity that we're just, everything's getting better and everything's changing and we're just so much better off. And um, I think light is a good example of this, right? The way we create light and use it, has that changed over 3,000 years? Yeah, a lot, right? Like there were torches and candles and now, and then there were those like horrible fluorescent lights that made you want to kill yourself. And now, you know, then there were the LED lights that didn't produce any. And now we're like, we're getting to the point where, you know, there's like decent LED lights that you don't want to jump off a bridge because you have to have them in your office, right? I mean, it's like, that's great, right? I'm for that. But the, but what hasn't changed? Human beings are still functioning off of eyeballs, aren't we? 
Nothing's changed about that. We're still totally dependent on our sense of vision, totally dependent on our sense of sight. We need light in order to see. We need something to do it. Torch, LED light, flashlight app, whatever. We need it, right? It's very easy to be to engage in a certain modern chauvinism that because we have technology, because our use of technology has changed, it's changed everything else, especially spiritual truths, moral truths, sociological truths, all those kinds of things. None of that stuff's changed at all. We're discovering more of it, but none of it's changed. And it's, it's important for us to recognize that some things don't change, but, they, but, that they, but sometimes we can learn more over time. And that's one of the things that's actually really great about the book of Isaiah is Isaiah is a book that demonstrates that the way, who God is, who we are, and how God relates to us in the gospel are, stay completely the same. But you can still learn more about how it's happening. And that's one of the things that's so great about the book of Isaiah. It's the book of Isaiah where we not only know that there's a Savior coming, we learn a whole lot more about what that Savior is going to look like. That he's going to be the servant Messiah. Now, we've got to clear up a couple things about why Isaiah is so important. And why I'm going to select some of the passages I am in a 60-chapter book, because we're going to spend maybe seven weeks in Isaiah. Um, here, there's two important developments to think about in the book of Isaiah. The first one is this. In the, in the New International Version, the translation of the Bible that's in your pews, the English word island is translated 15 times. 14 of those times, it's in the book of Isaiah. That's really interesting, Right? Here's why it matters. When Jesus comes later, he says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Tell everybody about me, he says. And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. And then later on, he says, You're going to go out into Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then Samaria, and then what? The uttermost parts of the earth. The very ends of the earth, right? Now, very ends of the earth is the literal language, too. That means very ends of the earth, right? But what would that be metaphorically? If you're, what would be the mental picture of the very furthest places in the earth? The islands. And so throughout the book of Isaiah, Isaiah will refer to the islands as the places where God's rule, the ruling King Messiah, his rule will reach the islands, and his saving message of redemption will reach the very, very ends of the earth, that is, the islands. We'll see that especially in the, the 50s chapters. Now, I do want to clear up something for those people who don't go to church a lot, and that is it's really easy to be confused about what a prophet is, especially in the modern world. People throw that word kind of around a lot. A prophet in the Bible is not namely somebody who predicts the future. A prophet is somebody who tells the truth in a particular situation that needs the truth inserted into it and speaks for God as persuasively as possible to draw people to repentance. Sometimes that includes the future, talking about the future, either how the future might be really, really bad, or how the future might be really, really good, or how it could be either one, depending on how they respond. The future is sometimes included, but a prophet is not namely a fortune teller or a future teller. They're a truth speaker. And they're seeking to persuade a particular group of people toward a particular end. Does that make sense? Okay, now I want to clear up another thing, because we're going to use the word Messiah a lot in the next seven weeks or so. And it's really easy to get confused about this. The word Messiah and the word Christ are the same word from two different languages, right? The word Christ comes from Christos, that is the Greek for Christ. And the other um, is Mashiach, which is just a 
Hebrew way of saying Messiah, right? It's just more, a more guttural way to say Messiah. Um, both just simply mean anointed one. They're fairly nondescript words. They just mean anointed one, like one you dump oil on. That's what it means. But, and it signifies somebody who's been anointed for a particular thing, an office. A thi- so they're going to do something. They're anointed, chosen, selected, empowered for a particular thing. That's all it means. The anointed one. And the Messiah is the anointed one. Yeah? Sweet. Which is why, if you understand the Greek version of it, you don't have to be offended when people spell, spell Christmas with a big chi and M-A-S. Because it's not Xmas, it's Chi-mas, Christmas. That is, that's just putting together a Greek and English spelling of the word in two different parts. It's not taking Christ out of Christmas. Um, but if you do want to feel superior to people for not liking that, if they put a hyphen in, that's wrong, and you can make fun of them for that. Right? So, um, in Isaiah, there's two things that we see. One is you see, you see an affirmation of the same dynamics. God's the same, we're the same, salvation's the same, the gospel's the same. But we learn more about it. He amends it, he goes, yes, 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 all that stuff you thought you knew is true. Now I actually believe it, but there's more that I want to tell you. And that's what we're going to look at as we get down the road in the series. However, you know how much I like talking about sin and This is a prophetic book. So one of the things that we have to start with is the very first chapter, because it's going to set the stage and the tone and the context for the whole thing, okay? So I'm going to read Isaiah 1 through till verse 20. Right? The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah son of Amoz saw during the reign of Uzziah Reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his master, the donkey his owner, his, his owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot, To the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. Your country is desolate, your cities burned with fire, your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a field of melons like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left some, uh, some survivors, we would have been like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams, the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure 
in the blood of bulls and the lambs and goats? When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me, and I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come. Now let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Everybody feeling in the holiday cheer? As we go through the rest of the book of Isaiah, it's going to be really clear that the kind of Messiah, the anointed one, the, that there's two, there's two very clear categories related to him that you've got to know. One is that he's king. When you get to chapter 9, he's the wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, ruler and behind kicker of everything. And, th- and then later, you get on into the chapters 40 and 50, and it starts talking about how the Savior is going to save. And you start getting this picture of a servant who's sacrificial, who allows himself to be terribly abused for the redemptive good of all people, that he's the king, absolute king, who is this extremely generous and sacrificial servant. And most of the time we think about that in terms of Jesus, in terms of Jesus and Jesus dying for our sins. But one of the things I think it's important for us to recognize is the Messiah was, is not the way he is only to pay for our sins. He is also that way to persuade sinners to come to him. It's not just that he can pay for our sins. It's that he can draw sinners. It is in this form that he is not only of maximal beauty, but he is the kind of beauty that will appeal hopefully, to the sort of critters that we actually are. He is designed to enter into our specific defects and to be attractive to draw us out of them. And as we read, as you read this passage, as you read the whole Bible, one of the greatest defects of human beings is our stubbornness. It's our stubbornness. My wife's nickname when she was a kid was The Mule. We have two or three kids that got, apparently got that. One of the things that we've talked about in our parenting is, listen, if there's, if there's a couple lessons, that, if you can only teach your kids like a handful of things, five things maybe, 
That's it. One of them better be how to let go of that stubborn urge. That like, I'm not going to say I'm sorry. I'm not going to say no. How to to know that that will kill them. How How it is a rejection of God, it is a destruction of themselves, and it is a manipulation of everyone else. And that they have to let it go. If I could teach, if, I, if you give me a list of only five things my kids could learn from me, then you're going to kill me. That would be on my list of five things. Probably because they'd never learn, you'd never get to kill me. But the better reason is because they got to know it. That's so important, right? And that's what we need. That's, I mean, that's the heart of a biblical faith, right? The heart of biblical faith is repentance and faith. It's letting go of the stubbornness, accepting that God is right, and turning to Him. It's biblical faith. That's what it is, right? And so when you look at this passage, there's, there's, like, there's three ways that this plays out, right? Um, what does human stubbornness look like? And how is this Messiah, how is Jesus specifically designed to invite you and me out of that? And the first one is the Messiah kind of being king and getting in our face, and that is the declaration of our rebellion. Now, in one sense, we've, a lot of you have probably heard this it's sort of this way. Listen, God is king. You're in his kingdom. You can't get out of it. If you don't love him and follow him and trust him, you're rebelling, that's treason, you're dead. Now, strictly speaking, biblically, is that right? You bet it is. Oh, yeah. Um, But why is that so difficult for us? And I I think um, one of the reasons is, is that we don't have a very clear sense of how our moral obligation is related to our relationships. Let me, give me a second on this. So if you look at the passage, right, listen to the language that God uses through the prophet. I've reared children and brought them up, right? But they have rebelled against me, right? Verse 4. A sinful nation of people loaded with guilt, you brood of, a brood of evil to his children given to corruption. Right? Those aren't betrayal words. Right? Then he explains what they have forsaken the Lord, they have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Okay, so first of all, do you see the emphasis? So God is speaking through the prophet, saying these words. Do you see the emphasis he's making in relationship to what we're really like? It's intentional, right? Now, part of the issue that I think we have with this is that when we, when we think of things in moral categories, the minute we pull relationships in, everything gets a little ambiguous. This is one of the reasons why marriages are having such a hard time. Right? There was a time when people would say, well, marriage is marriage. You agree. You're in. You can't leave. It's a subjective category. And that's partly because people thought of the morality of marriage in, out, out of context of the relationship the concept of the relationship. It's an agreement. It's a covenant, right? It's a contract. And if you think of it in terms of contracts, can you break a contract whenever you feel like it? Well, no, right? Most people can recognize that. If you say, I'm going to pay you this for this item, you pay them, you expect to get the item, right? You can't just break the contract and say, well, I don't feel like it. But we don't think of that way in terms of marriage anymore. We think in terms of of relationship and whether or not we're in love and so forth. And so the more we think about marriage in terms of the relationship, the less morally constricting we tend to assume it is. Well, I'm not in love anymore, or I don't feel this, or they do this to me so I can do that, or... 
and here's the thing that's, that's important about this. It seems to be intuitive to people that the more relational a particular dynamic is, the less objectively moral it is. And here's the problem with that. The Bible actually assumes everywhere the opposite is true. Now, you'll note that God nowhere gives a logical defense of why the people he created are morally obligated to him. He just assumes it. They're his creation. They're his children. Right? That's, the, no, that's not an argument, right? To say, this is my child. My child should listen to me. That's not actually an argument, is it? I'd have to say why the relationship of parent and child necessitates that the child listen to the parent. God doesn't argue that. He just says the relationship exists. It carries these moral requirements. It is what it is. Period. And see, this is difficult for us. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. We don't want to believe that about ourselves, but we all actually do believe it when it doesn't have to do with us. For example, would your emotional response be different if you heard these two sentences knowing that I was saying something that was actually true? A three-year-old boy was found abandoned on a New York subway. And a three-year-old boy was found abandoned on a New York subway by his mother. Now, I would argue your emotional response to those two senses should be different. Because if the little boy was abandoned by his mother, it is worse, and you know it's worse. And I didn't make an argument for it, and I don't have to make an argument for it, because when it doesn't relate to you, you intuitively know that a mother is morally obligated to her child. Now, and everybody in our culture knows it, until we start talking about children that aren't born yet. Right? But, you know that that moral obligation exists. We just, you know that a mother has fundamental responsibilities. If a mother said, listen, I know I have this two-year-old kid. I don't want him anymore. You might say, well, well it's, okay, it's better for him if we give him up for adoption. But what are you going to think about her? Now, it may be she knows herself well enough that she's a, a bundle of self-destruction and it really would be better for a kid. And it could be, at, on some level, in very rare situations, um, a good decision. But let's say that she just didn't want to. She just wanted to pursue other things. What would you think? Would you say, oh, that's morally neutral? It's not morally neutral. There is an objective moral responsibility she has to that child. She can't just not care about it. But how are you going to argue that she must? What's the, what's the rational syllogism? What's the moral argumentation you're going to use to airtight prove that a parent has a moral obligation to their child? There isn't one. Such things aren't proved in syllogisms. They're intuitively known. And they're declared in Revelation. And they're supported, maybe, in terms of their reasonability by logical arguments, but we know them, and God believes we know them, and he reminds us that we know them, and he declares that they're true, and when we pretend they're not true, he calls it rebellion, forsaking, betraying, spurning, turning their backs on. We live in a culture that believes that we're fundamentally morally independent of every relationship. We, we, we act at least like we believe that every relationship that we're connected to as human beings is optional on some level. And God declares all the way through the Bible because he is God, that is not true. And it starts with your relatedness to God. 
the relationship exists, the moral obligations of the relationship exists, and those moral obligations and that relationship cannot be dissolved and cannot be avoided. And you see this in Jesus' teaching on adultery. What does he say happens when, if a husband and wife divorce when they, don't ha- they can't legitimately spiritually do so, and one goes off and marries somebody else? What is actually happening there, Jesus? He says, adultery happens. Why? Because you acted like the relationship ended, but it didn't end. You don't have the power to create the ends of such things. Which is precisely why Jesus can then talk about marriage like it's this enormously sacred thing. And why we think we can talk about it like it isn't. And you see, if you understand that cultural, moral, and spiritual, and fundamental misunderstanding that we all just sort of breathe in and absorb in with the culture that we live in, and, you're, and then you wake up from it, all of a sudden you wake up into a universe in which you're in this matrix of relationships that starts with you and God, you and your family, you and your neighbors, in which there there are inextricable, deep, and meaningful moral relationships. And so that when God says you're in rebellion, and you say, well, in what way? He can say, you've turned your back on me. And then what can he say? You don't care about the widow. You don't care about the poor. You don't encourage the oppressed. Who are all these other people? They're all people that are in the moral sphere of relationships of the people that have turned their back on God. You see, if we can wake up from the cultural lie that the obligations of our relationships are voluntary. You can wake up from that lie. You can understand the biblical doctrine of rebellion. You can see how much of a betrayal it is to live the way we often do with the attitudes we have towards God. You can see what a demonstration of rank selfishness and stubbornness it is. And you can be free of it. You can be free of it. But rebellion is a kind of stubbornness that devours humanity one by one. And it will devour you if the Messiah King doesn't get in your face and tell you about it. You need the Messiah to be like that, not just to die for your sins, but to attract you and to attract me out of that version of stubbornness. The second one is self-destruction and self-neglect, right? So after God gets done talking about his rebellious children to the sun and moon, he then turns and addresses the people themselves. He addresses, well, us in this case, right? But ancient Israel in the context of the passage. Look what he says. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured. Your whole heart afflicted from the sole of your foot to the top of your head. There's no soundness. Only wounds and welts and open sores not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. See the point there? See, the first claim is is really, it's a moral one. It's about our misunderstanding of the universe and our disconnection with reality and therefore our misunderstanding of who God is. This one is trying to reveal to us something about ourselves. That that spiritual rebellion is going to kill us. That it's like going down a path that the further we go, the more tied up we are, the more beat up we are. And, and we are not going to just naturally at some point go, oh, I think I've had enough. We, we are too stubborn for that. The self-destructiveness of our stubbornness, our unwillingness to see how stubborn we are, makes it so that we don't go, oh, that hurts. We, we're not that kind of person. We're not... 
We're not sin wusses. We're, we're not the sort of person that like puts their foot in the water like, oh, that's cool, I don't want anything to do with that. There's some people, like, you might know some people that they never gotten in any trouble in their life because they're just like, they're just wusses. They don't want to deal with the trouble, right? It's like the goody two-shoes like sort of thing. Like sometimes, sometimes they're other people are like, I just don't want to get in trouble. I just don't want to have to deal with that. I just don't want to, I just don't want to have a baby. I don't want, I just don't want to, right? Which is not a terrible motivation. But listen, it is not the predominant spiritual motivation of human beings. We are, we are mostly self-destructive addicts. And when, we, when, when sin and rebellion and doing what we want and defining ourselves from ourselves doesn't work, do you know what we do? We don't take our chips and leave the table. We double down and we bet again and we go all in and we see if we can take another line of credit. That's what we do. We keep just betting more and doing more and going in deeper and trying harder instead of going, you know what, I don't think this works at all. And it's partly because we can't even imagine what it would be like to serve and love Jesus. You know, there's this famous, there's this famous quote by C.S. Lewis in his book Reflection on the Psalms where he says, he says, it's kind of like trying to help a little boy who's in the slums of London who's making mud pies in an alley and pretending he's a baker and to say, would you like to go on a vacation to the sea? To a little boy who's never seen the sea, doesn't know what it is, doesn't know what a shore is, doesn't know what a... But he knows he's having fun making mud pies in the slum. So why would he want to go to, on a vacation to the sea? And because, because our vision is so narrowed by sin and we can't imagine what it would really like for our hearts to be set free by Christ, to, I mean, to really live as not to ourselves and as to God, and for, because we, we can't even, it would just, the only thing we can think of is, I lost the money, I've got to win it back, I've just got to bet more. It's the, it's the only option we can see. And what God is saying is saying, He's saying, look, look, stop looking at the thing that you have to have that you'll kill yourself. Look at your own skin. Turn now and, and look at your arm. It's, there's no spot on you that isn't whipped, raw, cut open, bleeding. Look at your own body. Right? And then he, he, he goes even further and, he, and he's like, and it's, it's, it's festering. It's starting, the pus is starting to run. Right, I, mean, I, I remember um, there were a number of uh, World War II movies in the early 2000s, and one of the scenes that was in most of them was a camp of people who had been hurt in, in battle, and they had apparently been sitting there for a couple of days untreated. And there's like flies and stuff, and you can see that it's starting to— things are getting infected, and there's this hopelessness that comes with that. Like, it's one thing to get in a fist fight, and like you're bleeding, and you're like, ah, oh, I'm bleeding, whatever, right? I mean, not that I do that a lot, but— my wife comes home from a fight club all the time. That's how she feels. And so, but I mean, just like, oh, I just got her. Oh, I can take care of this, right? You're like, oh, I get, like, I get cut in my kids. Like, I have like a six-year-old and an eight-year-old. Like, I'll get a cut in my kids. Be like, oh my gosh, like, you're daddy, you're bleeding. I'm like, yeah, it's not that big a deal, right? Because for us, it's not that big a deal, right? Because you're just going to stop it. You're going to wash it off. You're going to put a little Band-Aid on it, right? It's no big deal. For them, they freak out, right? But if you don't do anything about it, if you don't take care of it, it is a big deal. Infection set it sets in. It pulls you down, and you finally get to the point where you want to do something about it. And it, listen, it's too late. Gangrene is set in. We got to saw the leg off. And you're like, wait, I didn't. I didn't plan on this. Of course you didn't plan on this. Of course we didn't plan on this. That's the whole point. 
God is saying, don't, listen. Listen, here's what human stubbornness does. It's self-destructive, and it's self-ignoring, and you will not only get beat yourself to death, you will rot in your own infection, and you will die, and you don't have to do that. And the image of the Messiah throughout Isaiah is one who will come in and who will lead you away from the road of self-inflicted harm and who will bind up and care for the wounds that have already been self-inflicted. So much so that it will say later in the book of Isaiah, by his wounds we are saved. No, healed, it says. We're made whole again. He'll heal us. That's a sort of, he's not just a king. He's the king from whom, whose hands flows healing. Right? And the third, and this is most of the passage, is manipulation. It's a misunderstanding of the gospel. So the rebellion, it's a misunderstanding of God. Right? Self-destruction is a misunderstanding of who we are. And manipulation religiosity. It's the misunderstanding of the gospel, right? It says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom, you people of Gomorrah, right? That's not referring to the people of Gomorrah. They're dead, right? There is no Gomorrah in 700 BC. He's talking about the people of Jerusalem. He's talking to his own people. He's calling them the people of Sodom and Gomorrah because that's what they're like, right? And he says, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Says the Lord. I have, an, I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams, of fat, of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Now, for those of you who don't go to church all that much, all the sacrifices and festivals that he's talking about, in that, that God's talking about in that passage, he commanded them to do. They didn't make it up. These are like real religious observances. But he's really clear about why he does not like them. Because they're using them for what they're not for. Right? The sacrifices were designed that if somebody was repentant of heart and turned to God and loved God and wanted God to save them, the sacrifices was a mechanism by which faith could access God atoning for them and saving them from their sins and forgiving them. It was a means by which a real repentant person through faith could come and receive forgiveness, right? It wasn't a substitute for repentance or godliness, which is what they're using it for. They're saying, like, well, God would like a ram. We'll just, instead of doing what he tells us to do, we'll just make a sacrifice. And you see a, a number of verses of this. And there's, uh, there's two things to, to take from this that are really important. The first is, is that, and here's one of the reasons why you don't have to worry about, you don't have to worry about people cheating the gospel. Now, Sometimes we have to worry about how people portray the gospel out there. But here's one of the things to recognize. Nobody cheats the gospel. Because when people come to God insincerely, this is what happens. What God says here. He says, listen, not only are these sacrifices dropping your religious observance, not accomplishing what you want, which is for me to give you whatever you want, it's actually doing the opposite you see, God doesn't say, you're doing these religious observances, and I'm unmoved by them. That's not what he's saying, is it? He's saying, actually, it's infuriating him, right? 
It's actually having a very strong negative effect. One of the reasons why the Bible is the oldest and greatest critique of religion. Right? You want, you, want a, you want a good critique of fake religion? You don't need some postmodern author from the Middle 80s, okay? Isaiah predates the criticizers of religious faith from the 1700s all the way through to the present by a mere 2,300 years. Simply to say... If you take that which God has given for your salvation, deliverance, and transformation, and you use it instead as a manipulative bribe to try to get God to do what you want him to, it doesn't just not work. It infuriates God. And that's important to recognize because if we misunderstand who God is, and if we misunderstand who we are, we are going to invent some kind of religiosity. For some people, it's going to be sort of the modern, non-religious superstition spirituality, right? Like, have you, have you seen these commercials, right? Or, or have, you, have you noticed that um, religion, is, religion is out, but occultic supernatural spirituality is in? Every major network has a vampire, dead people, zombie queen show. Right? Horror movies? There has never been in history the number of supernatural paranormal shows there are right now. Think about that. There are more nuns, people who don't claim a particular religion with doctrines, than ever before in America. And there's more. Now, this is really interesting because um, in, in, in the 1960s, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called This Hideous Strength, the third in the Space Trilogy. And in it, he talked about how. Um, how there would be this evolution, and of course this isn't a fictional novel, but he says there, there's, this, there's this group of sort of like government social engineers, and what they're doing is they're saying, we're going to get rid of Christianity and, and religion, all that kind of stuff, and then there'll be this sort of this secular, atheistic religion. And he said, but then there will be this, this the atheistic spirituality. Right? And now, normally people would think of like New Age spirituality, like, oh, it'll be kind of spiritual. No, it'll be superstition. And here's why. Because we want to get something for our spirituality. The human desire for religiosity. We might not like organized religion, but that's not what religion is. Religion is the use of some spiritual mechanism that doesn't have a scientific movement from A to B, but we believe if we do A, we'll get B. That's religion. It's also called magic. It's also called superstition. And so the new religion in the atheistic world will be the atheistic form of religion, which is superstition. If I do A, I will get B. I don't care why, and I don't care if it's good. I just want B, so I'll do A. So, hence the funny football commercials, right? If me going down to the basement correlates with us scoring touchdowns, I will go down to the basement. If my idiotic friend, right? Superstition. Th- that is what will be produced. And then you look around at culture and you go like, how did Lewis know that? But that is what we're seeing. We're not seeing this growth of non-doctrinal, altruistic spirituality in America. No, we are not. We are seeing a post-doctrinal, post-moral, superstitious spirituality. And it will continue to grow until it gets rerooted in the God who connects truth and moral goodness with blessing rather than 
if I do A, I can get B. To which 2,700 years ago, God declared through his prophet, God says, no, that actually infuriates me because it's manipulation. It's not gospel. It's not good news. It's not redemptive. But it's also important to remember that even though the shamanism of today is slightly different than the shamanism of yesterday, that's only funny to us because it's not a cheese head, right? <laughs> one of the things we have to recognize is that there is also the religious version, right? So one is, I want outcome B, so I'm going to invent religion A to get me outcome B. That's called idolatry. That's what most of us do. In addition to that, those of us who are religious do the other one. God has given actions A. I want to get outcome B. How can I manipulate the use of actions A to get outcome B? That's not faith either, is it? So God, if, you know, if you read the Bible, you're like, well, it looks like God wants us to go to church. He wants us to be generous. He wants us to do blah, blah, blah. You come up with a set of Christian religious practices. These are the Christian religious practices, right? Right? You want outcome B. Healthy, wealthy, wise, nice-looking spouse, kids that are never injured or sick or whatever. You want to move up nicely in your career. You want your 401k, whatever you want, right? You probably want all those things. I want all those things, right? And you go, how do I use these things to get God to give me that thing? It's the exact same thing. It's superstition. It's atheistic magic, right? It's, and here's, and Isaiah tells us the effect it has on the heart of God. And what is it? It's infuriating. Drives him nuts. It has the opposite effect that we require. Because God is not going to sit by and let us become increasingly, increasing moral disasters so that we can get what we want. That's, God is not after that. God is after children that look like him. Right? And so, when you, go, when you go through this, one of the things that we get to at the end here, right, is he says, he says, listen, I love this passage right here, verse 18. It says, come now, let's reason together, right? Or let's, let's figure this out. You could translate it like that. Let's figure this out. You see what he's doing? He's trying to talk to people like us that are really stubborn. And he's trying to get us to the point where we can have a rational conversation about our future. Right? This is what we used to call, this is what we call, used to call it the South. We used to call these come-to-Jesus meetings in the South. And that didn't, have, that didn't have to do with people accepting Jesus. It was like, you're having trouble at work with somebody and they needed to stop doing something. You'd have a, even if you weren't a Christian, you'd still have a come-to-Jesus meeting with them. Because like, they needed to wake up to something. You had a conversation. You needed to have a conversation. And they needed to realize what was going on. And it needed, you needed to get them to a rational state where they'd be like, okay, you're right, yeah. That's what God's doing. He's having a come-to-Jesus meeting with Israel. And through it, hopefully, with us. He's saying, listen, let's, okay, let's talk about this. Okay. Here's the state we're in. You're doing whatever you want. You're not really getting what you want, right? You're rebelling against me. You're killing yourself. And you're trying to manipulate this thing into something better. You keep doubling down and betting more every time you lose. Let's talk about this, okay? What if we did something totally different? What if instead of that, we did repentance and faith? What if, what if the, the human said, you know what? I think I'm wrong. I think I've got this totally wrong. I think I've misunderstood who God is. I think I've misunderstood who I am. I think I've misunderstood the dynamics of how we come together. I need to totally let that go. I need to totally turn around the other way. 
right? Now you may say, well, Nick, that's not actually what this passage says. This passage talks about salvation by social justice. I mean, just read it, right? I mean, what, I mean look at what it says. It says, wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the cause of the widow. I mean, he talks about that. Like, you're going to actually have to go do that stuff, right? Exactly. Think about that. If that bothers you, right, it's because it's you're not really repenting, right? If you're like, now wait a second, Nick. If I say I'm willing to help the fatherless and the widow and to, like, do what's right and to stop doing evil and to do what's good, like, I mean, that says I have to do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's why it's so important it says it that way. Because we have this ability to not, to say we believe something, 95% mean it, and know that the 5% we hold back is eventually going to pull us back, and we were planning that all along. Like, have you ever had this argument? Okay, so if you're married, you might have had this argument. Where um, your spouse wants you to do something, or you want your spouse to do something, and you argue your case for it really, really persuasively, and they eventually give up, but you know you haven't really persuaded them, Right? At my house, it's the, Nick, I don't understand why you can't take the trash out without me asking you to do it, right? It fills in regular intervals. You could work this out in your mind. You have a smartphone that could set a little alarm. This could be, right? And I'm like, yeah, oh, right. I've got, a lot, I've got to keep track of so much at work. Why should I have to keep track of this at home? Oh, right. Have you ever had this discussion? No, functional marriage is great. So <laughs> at, after you have that argument where you argue and the other person finally backs down, right? Um, the next day, do they do the thing you just argued about? This means yes. Who thinks they do it the next day? They go out there and they do it. You're right. Yes. Anybody raise your hand? You're right. The next day they will do it. How about the next day? Probably. What about two months from now? Nope. Uh-uh. Nope. Because you didn't persuade them. And so their motivation was terrible. And so they don't want to get in a fight. And so for a little while they do it. And then two, three months down the road, because they're not intrinsically motivated, that the thing is inherently good, that they should do it. They don't. Because they think you're being unreasonable. And so they don't keep doing something they think is unreasonable. They just passive-aggressively just sort of stop doing it. Sorry, baby. And so what you need to recognize then is that it's only by this means that we can be drawn to real repentance sometimes. Because until God says, no, go actually do it. And we go, okay, I'm... Only when you have to actually get out of the spiritual chair, so to speak, and move towards the actual thing, do you actually recognize whether or not that— li- because here's what happens. What do you do? What's going on inside of you when you're getting beat down on that thing? You're like, you're like no, 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 I shouldn't have to. Then you're like, and then somewhere inside there's this little voice that says, just back down. We can't win right now. Right? Have you ever said that to yourself? Just back down. We can't win right now. And so you concede— but there's a party that knows you're going to circle back around later and undermine that thing. And you know inside, you're like, you're mostly totally convinced, yeah. But, ne- but if you were observing somebody else's heart, you'd go, they're never going to do that. <laughs> but you've totally convinced yourself you're going to. That's one of the reasons why it has to be said like this. That's one of the reasons why in some places in the Bible, it doesn't say, you have to really feel like you're wrong. It actually has to say, you have to, you have to be holy. There are places in the Bible, like, for example, the book of Romans, or, I'm sorry, Hebrews. It says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Without, without actual holiness, I'll just tell you right now, without actual, actual holiness in your life, like, godliness, you are not going to see God. Right? 
Now, is that a contradiction to us being saved by grace and grace alone? By the sheer favor and love of God? No, it isn't. Not when one of the conditions of salvation is actual repentance. Because listen, if real repentance happens, some modicum of godliness is going to happen. It's going to. If, it's, if the repentance is honest, some modicum of godliness is going to happen. It's impossible for it not to. And so for God to demand actual actions of righteousness, and then to turn around and say, you're only saved by the graciousness of God, God freely gives you salvation if you'll just repent and turn towards him. That's all. They're totally compatible with each other because of how deceitful and stubborn-hearted we are. Do you see that? Because just a couple verses later, he's going to say that though your sins are like scarlet, that he's going to make them white as snow. And in chapter 53 in the book of Isaiah, it's going to explicitly say that through the death of the servant Messiah, the sins of all of God's people will be taken away. Not through their righteousness, not because they scrubbed themselves. But it comes down to that question. He says this, verse 19, if you're willing and obedient which is a way of saying repentant, repentance and faith, willing and obedient, right? You will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, another way of saying persist in stubbornness, right? You will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. Now do not let how funny that verse is be lost on you. It's obscured a little bit by the word devour, right? But look what he says. He says, listen, if you're willing and obedient, I will give you to eat the best. And if you are resistant and stubborn, I will give you to be eaten to the rest. For the, get the pun, mouth of the Lord has spoken. Humorously terrifying anyone? And God doesn't say, eat or be eaten, because he doesn't care which way you go. Both the promise and the threat are designed for your redemption. Right? Because God could damn us without any warnings, right? It's not like the warning is mean. Both the threat and the promise are meant for our redemption. It is all designed to attract the stubborn-hearted. Think about this. You read this whole chapter later today. Think about it again. Think about it as an appeal to a stubborn-hearted person. Think about it. How do you appeal to stubborn-hearted people? Are you any good at that? If you, if you, are you a peacemaker in your life? If you're a peacemaker, you know what's true of peacemakers? They're really good at appealing to stubborn people. People who are not being particularly reasonable. They're really good at like getting them to the point where you can say, okay, let's talk about this. Laying it out so that they can come to a moment of some modicum of rationality and be drawn to what's best for them, even though they're terribly stubborn. This is all designed that way. The whole book of Isaiah is designed that way. The Messiah is himself designed that way. He is designed not just to save stubborn people. He is designed to be maximally attractive to stubborn, stubborn people. People who are rebellious. People who are self-destructive. And people who are manipulative. He came, the incarnate one, the one who came at Christmas, he came to save and to attract to his beauty the most stubborn human beings 
so that he could turn that stubbornness into the divine tenacity that the rest of the Bible calls love that was exemplified and lived out and shown through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. So I want you to leave with two things today. One, a truthful, hearty, beautiful, thankful terror at what your stubbornness could do to you. I want you to go out knowing, embracing, believing in the inherent stubbornness of the sinful heart and what it does. And I want you to go out revealing that a God has made a match. For every defense, there's an offense. And God constructed and shaped his offense to attack that defense of ours. Not so that he could beat us, but so that we could be one. And you can just accept that if you're willing and obedient rather than resisting and rebelling. And if you see that, then you'll see a current of the truth of God going all the way through from 2700 B.C. to the present moment. And what was said 2,000 years ago, that the people living in darkness have seen a great light. can happen to you on another level, another way, and another depth. Because the Bible says, Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray. Father, um, we come here and we dwell on some of the same truths again and again. We're meant, we know not to just be familiar with them or even be bored by them, but get to the point where we believe and trust and know them. And God, help us to be a people that are able to let go of the stubbornness, are able to repent from the heart, are able to scrub our hands clean with a real, truly good conscience towards you of real faith and real repentance. And let us listen that you are the one that will make the red of our guilt as white as snow. We pray that in this next month that you would help us to see the Savior like we have never seen him before not only sufficient for our sins, but able to save us from our own willfulness, our own stubbornness, our own rebellion, and not just from threat, but all the more so from attractiveness, from the tenacity of his love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.